Well, let me begin by reading our passage for this morning, and then I'll make a few introductory remarks, and then we'll return to the passage. So if you are not already there, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There's perhaps no greater misunderstanding in the church today than that which concerns the Holy Spirit. One of the more recent research polls reveals that 62% of those who profess to be born-again Christians contend that the Holy Spirit is in fact not a real living being, but rather merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. That's alarming. One entire denomination makes this statement about the Holy Spirit. They say, the Holy Spirit, from the evidence found in the Bible, is not a person in a supposed trinity. The Holy Spirit is the very nature, presence, and expression of God's power actively working in his servants. So not only do they deny that the Holy Spirit is a person, but also deny the trinity. But nothing could be further from the truth than these statements. The Holy Spirit is indeed a person. In fact, the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1:26, listen to what is said. God says, let us make man in our image. So who are the us? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is baptized, we see all three members of the Trinity in one place at one given time. Luke 3, 21 to 22 says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son in you I am well pleased. So here we have Jesus being baptized. We have the Holy Spirit descending from heaven. And we have the Father speaking, all present there at the same time. All three persons of the Trinity are present at once in this event. But listen to how Jesus then himself speaks of the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26. He says, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. Personal pronoun, He. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. And the action that the Holy Spirit is described as doing here is an action that only a person could truly do. What will the Holy Spirit do? He will testify about Jesus. By the way, this is the primary role of the Holy Spirit. The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Christ, to point to Christ. In Acts 13, 1 through 4, we read, 
Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So here we have the Holy Spirit speaking to the disciples, setting apart Barnabas and Saul, who's Paul later on, and then sending them out. So the Holy Spirit is very clearly a person, not a force or a magic aura or something of that nature, as many suppose. And then, of course, we have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So these are just a few examples that speak of the personhood of the Holy Spirit. But despite the very clear descriptions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, there is no shortage of bad takes on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In fact, some popular charismatics would teach that the Holy Spirit is essentially God's power to help people become healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Others would insist that the Holy Spirit's primary function is to distribute some sort of miraculous gifts or to help you see dreams and visions, which then you would have to interpret as though you were a pagan mystic. Still others believe that the being filled by the Spirit is some unique sort of experience that gives you kind of an emotional rush or that's characterized by speaking unintelligible gibberish or doing things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. And so all sorts of things are attributed to the Holy Spirit that in reality he would have nothing to do with. And in many cases, what is attributed to the Holy Spirit is sadly blasphemous. Now, that's sort of one side of misunderstanding the person of the Holy, Tr of the Holy Spirit. But there's another danger, too. And I think this is the danger that many in our kind of circles would often fall into. This is just the ditch on the other side of the road. And that's sort of viewing the Holy Spirit as merely some empowerment by God in the actions of men by which you are then able to be obedient in your own strength. It's sort of the danger of believing that the Holy Spirit kind of lends you a little bit of power and then you can pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and you can make the God godly life happen on your own. It's the sort of thing that diminishes the true need and genuine power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, there must be obedience in the Christian life. And certainly our obedience is an act of will, but it must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so there's a little bit of tension here in that we both have to exercise our will to obey. And yet... In reality, even our will to obey is a gift from God and is wholly dependent on the Holy Spirit if it's to be pleasing and righteous before God. And so on one side, we have the belief that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than some powerful sort of cosmic 
Santa Claus that opens his bag of goodies and gives you all kind of powers. And then on the other side of the ditch, we sort of have a Holy Spirit that's acknowledged maybe in person, but his power is practically denied. The reality is that men can do moral things without the help of God. We realize that. There are lots of men in the world who don't know Christ who do moral things. They decide not to murder. They decide not to commit adultery on their spouse. They decide to adhere to the law, generally speaking. Those are all good things. They're all moral things, and none of them require the Holy Spirit. But what does require the Holy Spirit is to live a life of faith, to live a life that is righteous before God. So on one side, we have the Holy Spirit as some powerful force that divvies out sort of superhuman-like powers. And then on the other side, we have the acknowledgement of the Holy Spirit, but they've sort of drained him of all his power and substituted with human obedience. Both of those are wrong. Both of those make a mockery of the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and we need to avoid both traps. And so with that in mind, it should be no surprise that our passage this morning, beginning in verse 18, brings with it much confusion concerning what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Let me give you just a brief recap. Last week we spoke of the contrast between the worldly ways of living and the Christian ways of living, also from verse 18. And before that, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we observe that this wasn't a new idea that Paul was giving. It was consistent with everything he's told us up to this point in Ephesians. First, Paul tells us to walk as Christians walk, to walk as children of light. And then he tells us not to walk as unbelievers, and he gives examples of both. He's been doing that all along. And so here, he's using the example of drunkenness. And drunkenness is a representation of the godless life. And rather than give ourselves to alcohol to drink, he says, rather be filled with the Spirit. So last week we spoke of the character of the drunkard or the worldly man, and then the character of one who is filled by the Spirit. And so this morning, as we continue, we need to answer the question, what does it actually mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Does it mean that we experience some ecstatic, esoteric kind of thing, or is it something different than that? Now, last week we looked at the type of life that would characterize someone filled by the Spirit. Now we want to look a little closer at what being filled with the Spirit means. Now, we've already talked about what it's not. Being filled with the Spirit has nothing at all to do with some kind of emotional experience. Now, yes, God has given us emotions, and they are part of our Christian life, but, but an emotional experience is not what... It means to be filled with the Spirit. It's not even an evidence or a proof of being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't suddenly mean you have some outburst. It doesn't suddenly mean that you fall on the floor or that you start having some sort of uncontrolled twitching or ecstatic 
speech or lose your senses. It doesn't mean any of that. What it is, in fact, is really quite simple. And all we need to do is just ask, what does the word mean? And take the passage in context. The phrase says, but be filled with the spirit. That's very interesting. The word filled here, and I want to read you the definition straight from the Greek lexicon. It says this, what wholly takes possession of the mind is said to fill it. That's what it means. What wholly takes possession of the mind is said to fill it. Not the physical body, not the emotions, the mind. So to be filled with the Spirit means that you have yielded yourself, your mind, to the Holy Spirit of God, the things of God. And in the context here, Paul is saying that rather than letting wine control your mind, and we all understand that, right? You look at a drunkard, what happens? They're, they're, they're inebriated, they're inhibited. They can't function properly. They can't think clearly. Their mind has been given to alcohol. By contrast, the one who is filled by the Spirit, they have given their mind to the things of God. They're, they've let the Holy Spirit control their mind. Their mind is constantly being renewed by the word of God. That's what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. That's rather simple, isn't it? I think for a lot of people, they'll sort of look at that and be saddened that it's not some sort of experience-driven thing. But this is such a beautiful truth that you don't have to conjure up some sort of Emotion that you can know you're being filled with the Spirit if you have given your mind over to the things of God, and that is what controls you. So, how do we give our minds to the Holy Spirit? That's a great question. Romans 12, 2 says it best. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your emotions. No. Mind. Right? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We read and believe God's word, giving ourselves to God's teaching, renewing our mind, and in that, we are yielding ourselves, giving our minds over to the Holy Spirit rather than to the world or to alcohol, to use Paul's contrast. When you drink, you're giving your senses yourself to alcohol. But when you study the Word of God and believe the Word of God and obey the Word of God, you're giving yourself, yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I think something else that's extremely important here that we need to note, the whole time during the epistle to the Ephesians, the life that Paul has been calling us to live is impossible without the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we need to take note of that. This whole time during Ephesians, Paul says, put on the new man, put off the old man. He tells us to walk as children of light, not as darkness. You can't do that without being filled by the Holy Spirit. No one 
can put off the old man and put on the new without the Holy Spirit. No one can walk in a manner worthy of the calling without the Holy Spirit. No one can hope to imitate God, as Paul's just told us at the beginning of this chapter, without the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 of chapter 1 in the epistle, and I know it's been some time since we've been there, but it says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And so it's by God's grace that we're saved, and made holy before Christ in Him. And then it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are then able to live a holy life in light of what God has already done. So God calls us, saves us to live a holy life. But that can't happen without the Holy Spirit. Now that's not to be confused with the fact that every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The difference here is what we give ourselves to, what we submit ourselves to, to the Holy Spirit here so that the Holy Spirit is constantly filling us, so that we're constantly controlled, not by the lust of the flesh as the drunkard is, but by the Holy Spirit. And the passage, the words used here Give the sense of being continually filled. This is meant to be an ongoing thing. So we never lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we certainly can go through times where we are not being led and in that way filled by the Holy Spirit. When we're not submitting to the Word of God, to God's ways, to God's will, to God's Word. And so Paul isn't saying here that we need some unique one-time experience so that we can occasionally walk in a worthy manner, right? He's calling us to walk in a manner worthy. That's prolonged. It's continual. It's never ending. We're to walk as children of light. We're to avoid walking in the darkness. That's perpetual. And so the call here is to be continually filled by the Holy Spirit. And so he isn't saying we need a unique experience so that we don't participate in the deeds of darkness, but rather We're always being filled by the Holy Spirit. And I think, dear church, this is why we must know what the Bible teaches. This is why we've got to be in the Bible, studying the Bible, understanding the Bible. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit of God if you don't know the Word of God. Because you can't submit to the things of God if you don't know the Word of God. There are lots of people who never touch their Bible, who claim to be Christian, who can get together and have an emotional experience. And many would look at that and say, oh, they're singing songs about Jesus. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's just simply not true. It's just simply not true. No person will ever be filled by the Holy Spirit or be being filled by the Holy Spirit who isn't regularly in the word of God. And so as we read and we study and we obey God's word, submitting ourselves to the truths of God, we are being filled by the Holy Spirit. Our minds are being renewed 
and controlled by God's word. And that's what it means to be filled. It's that which controls our mind. So was the word of God controlling our mind or our emotions controlling our mind or is the world controlling our mind? And though some would think that this doesn't seem very supernatural, it is, in fact, the only genuine supernatural reality of the Holy Spirit because we can't do this on our own. No man can open up his Bible and even understand the words in it rightly without the aid of the Holy Spirit. Certainly no man can be obedient to the Word of God in a way that's pleasing to God without the Holy Spirit. And so it is supernatural. And it's never something that just spontaneously happens to us. And so here again, we sort of have this mystery of our obedience and the Holy Spirit's empowerment. If you want to be filled by the Holy Spirit, you have to be in God's Word. And you have to be obedient to God's Word. And yet at the same time, even that desire to be obedient is something that has to be given by the Holy Spirit. So when someone is talking about the Holy Spirit moving or being filled by the Spirit or the Spirit being present, you know what you'll always see if it's biblical? You'll see people concerned about living the type of life that Paul has been telling us about. You'll see people who are concerned deeply about whether or not they are walking in a manner worthy of the calling. You'll find people who are deeply concerned about whether or not they're walking in the ways of the world or if they're walking in the ways of the word. You'll find repentance from sin. You'll find a zeal for holy living, not an excuse to sin, not a justification for sin, but you'll find a brokenness over sin if it is a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. You know what else you'll find? A love for the church. You'll find a focus on the gospel. And the word of God will be at the center of it all because you can't separate Christ from the word of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so if whatever it is, it isn't characterized by these things, you can confidently, unapologetically, and with utter surety know that it is not of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul continues in verses 19 through 21, and he goes on and he talks about the manifestations of being spirit-filled. So what does a spirit-filled life produce in the life of a person? What does it look like? What flows out of that? And you know, God is so gracious to us. There are so many illustrations and comparisons and contrasts and pieces of evidence given to us that we really should be left with no doubts as to what being filled with the Spirit looks like. If we read our Bibles, there should never really be a question of if this is the Holy Spirit of God or if it isn't. So here we have four manifestations of the Spirit-filled life, and we'll talk about each one of them. Verse 19 says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making medley with your heart to the Lord, 
Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Four manifestations of being spirit-filled. A heart full of song. A heart full of thankfulness. A heart of humility towards one another. And a heart full of honor towards Christ. I'll say those again. A heart full of song. A heart full of thankfulness. A heart of humility towards one another. And a heart full of honor towards Christ. Four manifestations of being spirit-filled. The first manifestation here of the spirit-filled life is that it produces music in the heart towards God. Look, God created us to worship. In every way, in everything we do, He created us to worship in song, to sing, to praise, to make music. And in the absence of making medley in our hearts to the Lord, what do we see? Because the whole world worships in song. And they're either worshiping God in song or they're worshiping an idol. That's it. And there's a million different idols. It might be the idol of their feelings or the idol of self. Everyone loves music. That's because God's put in us the need to worship in song. So we give ourselves to the Lord in song or we give ourselves to worldly music. And dear friends, Satan counterfeits every aspect of the Christian life. And music is no different. You know, it's interesting, in 2021, music revenues just in America alone were over $8 billion. $8 billion. 47% of those who attended music concerts spent between $100 and $500 in a single event. This is just on music. 32% spent more than $500. And here's the biggest shocker. 72% of people will go into debt for the music they love who attend these things. Music is so important to them, they'll go in debt. Beyond that, the reality is that music is a part of every culture on the planet. You won't find a single culture where music is absent. It may be more advanced or more primitive, but there's music. It's a part of every culture because God made men to worship him and song is in one of the is one of the many ways in which we are to worship God. And so then it makes perfect sense that one of the marks of a spirit filled life would be one who has a desire to sing praises to the Lord, to sing songs about who God is and what he's done. God centered Worship, not man-centered worship about God. Do you understand the difference? God-centered worship is worship that exalts God, that has a focus on Christ and what Christ has done, on God's goodness and God's glory, on God's creation. Christ-centered worship is worship where God is the subject, the aim. Man-centered worship about God is what we have most of in today's Western church. It's songs about God, but in reality, it's all about how it makes me feel, what God's done for me. And there's a right place for singing about what God's done for me on the cross, but 
The difference is whether it's about my feelings and what I get or about the glory of God. But the spirit-filled life will be one who longs and desires to sing praises to the Lord. I mean, you realize this. You're at home doing just the everyday average things, and there's just something in you that wants to sing worship songs, that wants to hear good hymns and good worship songs, good genuine praise music, and so you turn it on and you sing along with it, and your heart's just overflowing with thankfulness. To God, that's an evidence of the Spirit-filled heart. You know, it's always interesting to me to learn of believers that will do things like they'll go to a club or a bar on Saturday night and they'll sing karaoke in front of all these people that they don't know, they've never met before, and then they'll come to church on Sunday morning and they'll stand in the back and they won't sing at all. Or they'll sing so softly, you could hardly tell if they were singing at all. When the night before, they sang all this worldly music as loud as they could in front of all these people. There's a problem there. And the point is not how softly or loudly you sing, but that the spirit-filled man or woman will have more of a desire to sing for the, for the Lord than they will for the world. You know, it's just also worth noting that of all the things Paul could have mentioned here, because there are many evidences of a spirit-filled life, but of all the things Paul could have mentioned, he mentions song first. He mentions having hearts full of song first. It's just an interesting note. And by the way, the heart filled with song for the Lord isn't concerned about whether or not you have the greatest voice. He's not concerned about whether you match the pitch perfectly. God doesn't care about that. It's simply that the love of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the grandeur of God, and the beauty of Christ is so evident to you and so overwhelming that you just can't help but to sing to the Lord. I don't know if you realize this, but there are over 50 commands in Scripture for God's people to sing. And the word itself, we find over 400 times in Scripture. L let me just give you a few places. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 59, 16. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. 68. Four through five, sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord and exult before him. Nine two, Psalm nine two, I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O most high. Thirteen, five and six, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 71:23 My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. Anytime we gather together and we sing songs and worship of God, it should be that our only thought and our only focus is that God would hear our song 
and be pleased and glorified. It doesn't matter what your neighbors think. If they're focusing more on your singing than they are worshiped, then they have a heart problem. We're singing for an audience of one, as it were, God. And that is an evidence of the Spirit-filled life, one that just can't help but to sing for God. Now, in the book of Acts, we find the Apostle Paul doing this very thing that he describes in our, ter- in our text. In fact, just turn with me there quickly. Go to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. Listen to this, 16, 22 through 30. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them. By the way, this is Paul and Silas in prison, okay? The magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fasten their feet in the stocks. So here's Paul and Silas. They've been beaten for sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now they're in the deepest parts of the prison with shackles even on their feet. Verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And you think, how on earth are you singing at a time like that? They've been beaten. They've been tortured in that way. I mean, we think of beaten. This wasn't a light thing. And then they've been taken to the inner parts of the prison and shackled. So they're in this prison, this jail, in pain. And it's about midnight. And they're singing hymns of praise to God. It goes on to talk, say, Suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And this is where you think, all right, God's moving. I'm getting out of here. That's not what happens. Listen to this. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You see, if they would have escaped, he would have been executed. That was a common thing. Supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. You see, they would have known the consequence if they would have escaped. And he called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, What must I do to be saved? Powerful. But you see, Paul and Silas, they were filled with the Spirit. And it was being filled with the Spirit that caused them, in some of the darkest times in their life, to still burst out in the middle of the night, singing praises to God. 
Only a spirit-filled person could respond to terrible conditions in that way. When the Word of God lives in you, you can't help but to sing to God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There we have it again in Colossians. And so one mark of a genuine Christian is that they will desire to worship God in song, which will be from a heart of thankfulness and gratitude for who God is and what He's done in Christ. In fact, every Lord's Day, when we gather and we sing praises to God, this is what we're doing. We're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another out of thankfulness to God. Now, next in our passage, we see that the spirit-filled life produces a thankful heart. And this is a general disposition, right? It says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Not some things, not sometimes, not when things are easy or going our way, but always giving thanks. And by thankfulness, we don't mean the sort of snide, self-deserved feeling of thankfulness. You you know, you can kind of have that thankfulness because you think you deserve it. We're not talking about the hypocritical kind of thankfulness. But it's a thankfulness that's true and genuine and born out of a love for Christ and a realization of what you have in Christ that you don't deserve, but you have it because God loved you. It's the thankfulness that will follow Christ wherever he goes because of a deep gratitude of loyalty in the heart. In fact, we see a good illustration of this thankfulness in Luke 17. If you will, just turn with me quickly there. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. Listen to what it says. While he, this is Jesus, was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They clearly heard Jesus was healing people, right? When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them... When he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Where are there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. But this is a heart of thankfulness. Ten men were healed that day and only one came back and followed Christ. Only one was truly thankful. And this is a mark of being spirit filled. It's the thankfulness that led Paul to sing in the prison cell after being beaten. It's the thankfulness that caused the apostles after being flogged in the synagogue to Rejoice that they had been considered worthy to suffer 
shame for the name of Christ. Their thankfulness for what God had done so overwhelmed whatever terrible circumstance they were in. They knew that nothing could separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so they were perpetually thankful. Verse 20 says to give thanks for all things. And that's exactly what the apostles did. They were beaten. And then they gave thanks saying that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of Christ. I mean, you have to have a thankful heart. Right? To be beaten and then praise God that you were worthy. The spirit-filled life always has something to be thankful for. I think, sadly, this is especially difficult for us in America. We've been so spoiled here, and we have been, that we tend to complain and grumble about everything. Now, this is contrary to how the Christian is meant to respond. Complaining and grumbling is the way of the world. It's not meant to be the way of the Christian. It's not indicative of a spirit-filled life. And a heart of thankfulness isn't something that can be conjured up. And so someone may use the word thankful, but the truly thankful will demonstrate that in their life. And it requires being filled with the Spirit because only the Spirit of God can produce a heart where a person can be thankful in situations like what we see the apostles went through. Only a true heart of thankfulness can lead to the type of responses like we see the martyrs of old. How they responded. Only a true heart of thankfulness can look at the world around us and not be fearful. And moved by all of just the evils we see going on or more importantly when we are attacked and when we are shunned and when... We are persecuted. A true heart of thankfulness can look past all of that because in reality, we already have more than we could ever deserve just in our salvation in Christ. A spirit-filled life is a life that's thankful in its general disposition. A third manifestation of being spirit-filled is that there's humility towards one another. Verse 21 says, and be subject to one another. Well, humility is implied here because to submit to someone presupposes a humility that deems another person more valuable than themselves, worthy to be submitted to. And now I think living in the American context, in the Western context, this mark is particularly telling. Of course, it's the fallen nature of man that leads him to be arrogant and prideful and unwilling to submit to others. But this particular trait of being independent is ingrained in the life of our country. There are other countries that are very community-centric. America is very individualistic. I mean, in fact, the American dream was essentially that anyone could attain their own version of success in a society where upward mobility was possible for every person. And so you could work hard, you could pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you could succeed. And it's you, you, you. 
but it embodied the essence of self-determination, self-will, and independence. I mean, we live in Alaska. A lot of people move to Alaska because they want that rugged independence. They don't need you. They don't need me. They don't need the church. They don't need God. They got this. But that's sort of the American way. I mean, since the inception, America has drastically changed. I don't think the American dream even is what it used to be. But now our society has adopted other mottos. And you've probably heard some of these things. Things like, you do you. Well, it's kind of hard to submit one to another if your attitude is you just do your thing and I'll just do my thing and we'll leave each other alone. Here's another one. You live your truth or find your authentic self. These are all expressions of hubris and individualism. I mean, this is the way of the world. And we're constantly bombarded by these views. But Paul is telling us that a spirit-filled life is one that's actually humble and willing to submit to one another in Christ. And he's been teaching us all along that the Christian is to look differently than the world. And so the spirit-filled man is not one who's this rugged individual, but rather one who is humble, both before God and fellow believers. And so we should constantly look out for one another. We should constantly desire to be looked out for by one another. Understanding that our gifts are not for ourselves. The gifts of God given to God's people are for the church. They're for one another. We all have blind spots, and we all need one another. And this is seen best in the local church context, where we lovingly correct one another, we lovingly admonish one another, we lovingly encourage one another, and we receive the same with a humble heart. Lastly, which I think is the most important of all, because without this one, there is no wisdom and there can be no spirit-filled life. And that's the fear of the Lord. Paul says, do all of this in the fear of the Lord. There's no greater sign of a spirit-filled person than a heart of honor for Christ. And you certainly can't have that if you don't even have the beginning of wisdom, which is salvation. Listen, Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord prolongs life, Proverbs 10.27. Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 1.12.1, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Proverbs 23.17, do not let your heart envy sinners but live in the fear of the Lord. I feel like I should read that one again. Proverbs 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. And so this fear is a reverence for Christ that demands obedience. It's more than mere respect. You can have a respect for someone and not necessarily obey them but this is a respect that insists upon submission it's out of this fear of god that the spirit-filled christian submits to one another this is why we submit to one another 
We want to be more like Christ. We want to be corrected where we're off. We desire to be more holy. And if my neighbor, if the guy across the pew from me can see things in my life that need to be changed to make me more like Christ, then I humbly want to submit to that because I fear the Lord. So it's out of this fear of the Lord that spirit-filled Christians submit to one another. It's out of it's because of this fear of the Lord that we sing praises to God. It's this fear of the Lord that leads us to be thankful because to know the fear of the Lord is to know the Lord himself. And if you know the Lord, if you know the love of God, it's because you know the fear of God. You'll never convince me that someone who has no fear of God has any true love for God either. So a heart full of song, a heart full of thankfulness, a heart of humility towards one another, and a heart full of honor towards Christ. These are the things you find in any true spirit-filled person. Let's pray.